0: Suddenly, everything went dark. I knew something terrible was happening to me. And into the total obscurity, a voice came through. Albi, this is Ivo Garrido. You're in the Maputo Central Hospital. Your arm is in a lamentable condition. You have to face the future with courage. And into the darkness, I said, what happened? And a woman's voice answered, it was a car bomb.
1: Albie Sachs was a justice of South Africa's constitutional court from 1994 to 2009. It was the capstone of a remarkable legal career. As a young lawyer in apartheid South Africa, he dedicated himself to defending people charged under race-based laws until eventually imprisoned himself and forced into a decades-long exile. In 1988, while living in Mozambique, he lost an arm and the sight in one eye when South African Security Service has planted a bomb in his car. Albie returned to South Africa after apartheid ended and was appointed to his country's highest court by President Nelson Mandela. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Albie Sachs who joined us from his home in Cape Town. Albie Sachs, welcome to The Big Interview. I want to start with, I, I guess, what was a, a pivotal moment in your life, which was the bombing in April 1988. Uh, before that point, how reconciled were you to the idea that you were risking your life in this struggle that you had undertaken?
0: I was very, very aware of possibility of, of a bomb attack, because Ruth first. Had been killed by a letter bomb sent to her at the Eduardo Mondlane University in Maputo. She opened it and exploded, blew away her face. Uh, and the idea that somehow, as intellectuals uh, working with the ANC, supporting the struggle against apartheid, but not directly or even indirectly involved in armed struggle or clandestine work, that somehow we would be safe. So the idea that being intellectuals at the university not involved in the armed resistance to apartheid, not doing underground work at all, simply working in Mozambique, being openly anti-apartheid. The idea that that would give us immunity, that we were soft targets, that the, the, the regime in Pretoria wouldn't be going for us, that was destroyed because Ruth First, this brilliant, marvelous, wonderful intellectual was just blown up and, and killed. So it, it was living with dread, not wanting to run away, not wanting to give them a cordon sanitaire uh, of states around South Africa that people were scared to go to in case they were killed. So you don't want to flee. You want to carry on with your work, but you also don't want to be a target. So I actually felt that my car would be an obvious place uh, and, and managed to get a very sophisticated alarm in America. I brought it to Maputo, Uh, And there was no one there who could install it. There was one Danish technician. And I had to wait till he came back from leave. He installed it. And then when I went away, I lent my car to a chap called uh, Indras Naidu, uh, who'd also been in the struggle. He'd been 10 years on Robben Island. I'm away. Let him use it. He used the car. And he didn't want to hand it back all dusty. Streets are very dusty there. So he hosed it down and he hosed it so well that he disarmed the alarm system and there was no one in Maputo who could fix it. Well, I carried on driving uh, and went down the stairs on public holiday. I'm relaxed. I'm gonna take things easy from the morning, go to the beach and boom. Uh, Everything just went totally dark. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew it was something terrible. And I had that feeling that I was being pulled and I was going to be thrown into a car and taken to South Africa and thrown into jail there. And I had that sort of sensation of, leave me, leave me. And I'm saying this in Portuguese, deixe-me, deixe-me, and in English, but I'm not shouting too loud. I'm a lawyer in a public place and I must make a noise. I'm half aware of those sort of emotions. And then it's total darkness. And into this darkness, I hear a voice saying, Albie, he's speaking Portuguese. Uh, you're in Maputo Central Hospital. This is Eva Gerardo speaking to you. Your arm is in lamentable condition. You must face the future with courage. And I said into the darkness what happened. And a woman's voice said, it was a car bomb. I fainted back into that obscurity, but with a sense of joy, I knew I was safe. I wasn't being kidnapped, but it was more than just safe. I'd survived that moment that every freedom fighter is waiting for. Will they come for me? Will they come today? Will I be brave? Will I get through it? They tried to kill me and they'd failed. In that darkness, I wake up, some time has passed, I can't see anything, my eyes are covered, and I'm feeling very light and joyous. And I tell myself a joke. It's an old joke about Jaime Cohen, who like me is a Jew, he falls off a bus, and he gets up and he makes what appears to be the sign of the cross. And his friend said, I didn't know you were Catholic. He said, what do you mean Catholic? Spectacles, <laughs> testicles, wallet and watch. And I started with testicles, seemed to be in order. Wallet, my heart is okay. My head, if it's brain damage, that's very serious. is a crater, but okay. And watch, and I slide down and it's only my arm. I've only lost an arm and I felt quite joyous. And I had a total conviction as I got better, my country would get better. And that was 1988. And that's exactly, exactly what happened. It transformed my life in some ways in a quite wonderful way. Because in South Africa, in the struggle, banned, raided by the police, thrown into solitary confinement, sleep deprivation. By the time I left in 1966 to go into exile in England, I was very crushed, very crushed. And it took me a long time to get my courage back. And somehow this bomb seemed to blow away all that heaviness. It was really like, in that sense, a second birth. And then I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid if my friends called me bourgeois, which is a horrible (laughs) thing to be (laughs) in a people's movement. Let them call me bourgeois. So what? This is what I think. This is what I'm going to say. And it made me more confident, more assured, and somehow things connected up again. And little things that would be a sign of bigger things didn't distress me as much as they'd done before.
1: Do you have any feelings one way or the other now towards whoever planted it?
0: I don't believe in higher powers. I don't believe in any kind of of, of predestination. But I'm a judge, a new judge, working very, very hard, Constitutional Court in South Africa. The phone rings, and I'm told it's reception here, there's a man who says he has an appointment to see you. His name is Henry. And I say, send him through, my heart's going boom, 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 boom. Henry had phoned me to say he was the one who'd organized the bomb in my car. He's going to the Truth Commission, and am I waiting to see him before he goes? And I go to the door, and I open it, And I look, this is the man who tried to kill me. And as we walked to my chambers, he's striding like a soldier. And I use my best judge's ambulation to slow him down. And we sit down, we talk, we talk, we talk, we talk. He tells me what a good student he was, how proud he is of his parents. He went into the army. He grows up in the ranks. (laughs) He's boasting to me about becoming a senior in the head squad to try to kill me it was kind of weird but he had the i don't know audacity or shame or curiosity to come and see me we spoke we spoke we spoke we spoke with a funny kind of strange bond and eventually he told me about the bomb attack on me that he dropped out at a certain stage of being postponed but when it happened he knew that he'd been responsible for planning it and i said as we stood up henry Normally, when I say goodbye to someone, I shake their hand. I can't shake your hand. Go to the Truth Commission. Tell them what you know and who knows one day. And as we walk back to the security gate, he's not that proud soldier anymore. He's shuffling along. And I forget about him. And then time passes, maybe six months, nine months. I'm at the end of your party. Music is loud. And I hear a voice that says, Albie. I turn around. I can't believe it. It's Henry the same guy and he's got a huge smile on his face Uh, and he says I went to the truth commission and I spoke to Bobby and Sue and Farouk people who'd been in exile with me first nine terms and you said that one day and I said Henry I've only got your faith to say what you're telling me is the truth and I put up my hand I shook his hand I almost fainted he went away beaming but I heard afterwards, actually, that he went home and he cried for two weeks. I don't know if that's true. I want to believe that it's true. I I'm more important that he cried that he went to jail. He's going to jail wouldn't do anything to bring arm back to change the country. But his crying means he's becoming part of our nation
1: that thought of him going home and crying for a couple of weeks as opposed to going to prison or undertaking any more rigid judicial punishment, is that an example of what you've described as a soft vengeance, which I know is a, a concept you're very keen on?
0: I don't know if I invented that concept, and I'm very really happy for other people to use it, but it emerged not through reflection, but through a kind of intuitive emotion, which I think is the most powerful source of pronounced uh, important ideas and i'm lying in my hospital bed at the london hospital and recovering and i get a letter and i'm opening with my one hand and it says don't worry comrade albie we will avenge you signed bobby and i do can i think you avenge me we're gonna cut off the arms you're gonna blind in one eye is that the country we're fighting for If we get freedom, if we get democracy, if we get the rule of law, that will be my soft vengeance. Roses and lilies will grow out of my arm. And that was just an idea that came to me, not to to fit in with any moral precept, but that's the country I want to live in. That's how I want to feel. That's something that gives me, restores my sense of worth and dignity, that it was not for nothing. It was part of something, idealism, the risks that we took, the challenges that we met, the solidarity and comradeship we felt amongst each other was all part parcel of that kind of human program. Very, very powerful. And in the end, that proved to be much more powerful than the guns and the torture instruments and the lies and the disinformation of the regime. That was well-organized, well-structured, very powerful in terms of munitions and instruments, but lacked that in a core of, of deep morality and justice which is what we were fighting for
1: that triumph though of those victories were a very very long time in coming this for you personally at least your part in this struggle was over 30 years you were imprisoned uh, you were exiled for decades and then of course somebody tried to kill you and as you have just outlined you had set yourself against extraordinarily forbidding foe Was there ever a point during any of that 30-odd years that you just thought, we may have bitten off more than we can chew here? This is not something that is within our capacities or within my capacities to defeat?
0: No, I I wasn't convinced that I would survive because risking death is part and parcel of the project of taking on a very ruthless and, and cruel enemy that doesn't allow for voting and contestation and opinions and so on, but never, never, never thought that we're not going to succeed. And it was partly the strength of the idea. It wasn't just a fantastic idea, the non-racial idea, the core humanity, the equality between everybody, but also we were the majority in South Africa, overwhelmingly. And we had the world on our side and we had African nations on our side so it was a combination of inherent justice, majority of the people, and world opinion with us, and very, very wise leadership. Nelson Mandela is well known, but he was just one of a whole grouping of people, uh, the Susulus and Kathrada and Helen Joseph and so many other people, Fatima Mir, you know, all participating in this great struggle. So it was never a doubt about when it would happen. In fact, it took longer, much longer than we thought. When we went into exile in 66, we thought five years, 10 years, we'll be back. And the funny thing was when, in 1990, the clerk made his announcement in Parliament that the ANC is unbanned, exiles can return, we were taken by surprise. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. When it happens, we taken by surprise. But we jumped for joy. We jumped for joy. And coming back, That was really soft vengeance in spades. We're coming back to write the constitution. Can you imagine you're a lawyer and that happens to be a vocation and you're asked to take part in writing your country's constitution. Voting as an equal for the first time. And then on top of that, being put on the court that's defending that constitution. And if that's not enough, being on what we call the, the decor committee of the constitutional court, helping with the conceptualization of a beautiful court on the site of an old prison in Johannesburg, representing the swords into plowshares. A wonderful building emerges from that. It was like one layer of soft vengeance after the other and far more empowering and significant and meaningful and much deeper than sending lots of people to jail.
1: When you think back to the very beginnings of this, and I I know that the struggle and the recognition of South Africa's fundamental injustices was something you inherited from your parents in many respects, but I'm always interested in that moment where a particular person decides not just that something is wrong and something should be done about it, because I think we can all do that, but that moment when a particular person decides I should do something about this. Was there a particular moment for you or did it just sort of seem like what you were kind of, I guess, born to do?
0: (laughs) It was (laughs) prenatal. I didn't stand a chance. (laughs) I was named after Albert Nzula, who had been in the Communist Party, been a trade unionist, who died before I was born. On my sixth birthday, my dad, Solly Sachs, who was the General Secretary of the Garment Workers' Union, uh, sent, it was during World War II, sent me a card. Albert, my son, may you grow up to be a soldier in the fight for liberation. So I didn't stand a chance. It, it was there. My mother would say, tidy up, tidy up, Uncle Moses is coming. And Uncle Moses happened to be not Moses Cohen or Moses Levine, but Moses Kotani, the General Secretary of the Communist Party. She was his typist. So I grew up in a world where my mother, a white woman, was the typist for her boss, who was a black man, whom she had enormous respect for. So in that sense, there wasn't a moment when I discovered how wicked and unfair and unjust racism was. The thing for me, though, was I hated my parents assuming I would follow in their footsteps automatically. And it was only when I was 17 at university second year law student. Strangely enough, it was through poetry that I became politically active, hearing lectures by an Afrikaans poet called Ace Cricha on a Spanish poet called Federico Lorca. I never knew they even had poets in Spain. I thought they just had bullfights. But he'd been in Spain during the Civil War and Ace walked up and down the platform reciting Lotka's poetry, Neruda's poem about Lotka, I don't think I killed at five in the afternoon. And that did something to me. I love poetry. But poetry was inward. It was soulful. It was purely personal. What this lecture did was connect up that poetry, the soulfulness, with the big public events of the world. And a few weeks later, I was volunteering to join the Defiance of Just Laws campaign. After that, it wasn't a question of what has to be done, uh, where my duty, if you like, of my soul, my being was, would I have the courage? Would I have the strength? And I was pretty crushed by my detentions. I wasn't very strong when I left and went into exile. So, and I almost broke in detention So these were very deep moments for me, but they weren't moments of doubt about the uh, nature of the struggle and certainly never any doubt that the system of apartheid would be destroyed.
1: I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of leadership in in helping to affect the transition that South Africa underwent in the 1990s and which ended up placing a career rebel like you on the constitutional court and, and obviously Nelson Mandela in the presidency. What's your view as somebody who saw that process and that president up close of as you're aware, there is a conventional wisdom that if it had not been for Nelson Mandela still being alive and in a position to do that job by the early 1990s, and that was obviously far from guaranteed, then the outcome could have been an awful lot messier. Did that whole moment of history hinge on that one man being in the right place at the right time? No. No,
0: no, 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 His strength came from the fact that he was a leader of a movement with a long history. ANC formed in 1912, layers of history, deeply implicated, uh, Portuguese word, in the lives of the people from generation to generation. And part of his strength was he was a great listener and he was part of a team and they were working as a team. And he was a marvelous public face of a popular struggle. He articulated with a style and a bravura and a humor and a humanity that was marvelous. But if it hadn't been him, it could have been and would have been somebody else and other people. And truly, you know, I'm saying this, it's not simply because I don't believe in the great man theory of history that we dragged along by great men. I think great people could capitalize, if you like, on certain deep currents in history but certainly in the case of Mandela, if Mandela had existed, we wouldn't have had to invent him. We would have found a Susulu or somebody else or a somebody else. I don't know who it might have been.
1: Are you at all disappointed by what the African National Congress has become since the 1990s. Did you hope that South Africa might have become a more, I guess, viable multi-party democracy than it has become?
0: The one thing we are good at, and I'm very proud of, is we a very viable, multi-party democracy. The Constitution is deeply entrenched. Elections are manifold. They're free and fair. You've got a strong, independent judiciary. If Parliament's not doing its work properly because they're conniving with the President, Parliament will say the President has duties. Parliament's job is to hold the President to account, and it has done that. It's not just theoretical. We've got a very lively press, a strong media. So we've got lots going for us. What we haven't got is equality. We're way ahead of where we were in those days. First of all, signs of advance, but it's still a grossly unequal society. We haven't got personal security. People who go abroad, they say how fantastic it is. You can walk around at night as though it's the most amazing thing particularly for women who feel that they can walk around freely at night anywhere in the city we haven't got that security that we're entitled to we've had layers of corruption but we know about it because we don't take it for granted we expose it we denounce it there are huge battles going on inside the anc outside the anc fierce contestation on exactly all these issues so that's what gives me courage and strength i happen to personally have a great admiration for our president having worked with him on the writing of the constitution but it's not just dependent on one individual and i might say i left the anc when i wanted to be a candidate to become a judge that's 1994. so i haven't attended a branch meeting i haven't voted inside the organization, taking a stand as ANC for 27 years. But I follow what's going on and I'm glad that we're exposing the corruption. I'm glad that we made aware of the inequalities. I'm glad that present in everybody's minds is the fact that we have millions of unemployed, that these issues are so upfront on the agenda. I'm sad that we haven't done more. You know, we blame apartheid and correctly for institutionalizing, systematizing, so many forms of division, separation, mentally and spatially and physically, but we've also been shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, and my saying is, yes, we've shot ourselves on the feet so many times, we've run out of feet to shoot ourselves in. In other words, don't blame it all on the past, take a responsibility for the mistakes and crimes, not only mistake crimes that are being committed, but we've got a country. We can speak our minds. I can say what I like to you, and I can say what I like on South African Broadcasting Corporation or private services in South Africa. For me, these are very, very positive things. And I'm also meeting fantastic young people. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. We, we fought so hard. and We've got a fantastic constitution that opens the way to change. It doesn't bring about change opens the way it hasn't been used as well as it should be used. I like it that the gender consciousness has been so profound that thousands and tens of thousands of women marched in the streets to condemn gender-based violence. And I like the artistic forms of expression in the different media, particularly music, but not just music, in dance, in visual uh, arts. We have a great contemporary art museum I have to be on the board of in Cape Town. It's world-class. So, so yeah, you know, it's a country with vibrancy, uh, with energy, with people who are angry, but people who can laugh. Our biggest growth industry in recent years has been stand-up comedians. <laughs> uh, and that's really good for any country. So it, it's no accident that Trevor Noah can go and become triumphant with his humour in the United States of America. We're not simply importers of American humour, we're exporters. Of humour to to America, uh, and I say these things with with conviction and with pride, uh, because it's a country, South Africa, with with a lot of positive energy that's competing with the negative energy, with with the failures and with the crimes that have been committed.
1: Albie Sachs, thank you very much for joining us on the big interview. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. And do look out for next week's episode in which Monocle's Robert bound sits down with Dirk Boll, the president of Christie's. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.